Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, gun control and executive action. So Richard, we had just a few days ago President Obama rolling out a series of new gun control policies, primarily around who has to do background checks, although even that is still sort of nebulous. We don't have exact terms as to who's going to be caught up in that regulation. Also some new mental health spending, uh, some enforcement mechanisms. Uh, my reaction, the reaction from a lot of people in the press looking at this is that it's pretty thin gruel. Anything about this strike you as earth-shattering? Well, I mean, I have not studied this in detail, but my view is exactly the same as everybody else's, which is that there's a huge problem out here. The president thinks that the way in which to solve this is through legislation that gives him more ability to control sales, mental health legislation and the like. Um, as an executive order, he knows he's a little bit on thin ice. It's likely that he will lose the immigration case, for example, if the Supreme Court takes it. He's already lost it down below. Um, he knows that if he pushes very hard on this thing that the anti-executive power types will take after him and insist that he show legislative authority for what he's doing. And so what he's trying to do is to be happy to all people, to show the strong gun control addict you know, um, advocates that he's with them, but not to provoke a huge challenge by the opposition, which will tie this thing up for years. Clearly, the strategy will fail in the following sense. The people who really want him to do stuff will basically echo Ch Churchill and say, too little, too late. Uh, this is really not anything. And the other gun control types will come out and say the Second Amendment cannot possibly tolerate any intrusion by the president and make the executive power argument. So he's not going to win friends or influence people on either side and what he is trying to do essentially is to talk to himself and to say, look, I've tried to take this thing on. I think the real issues that are involved here are the question of what the president's mindset is on the gun control issue writ large, but that's a different kind of question. I'm happy to talk about it, but I don't think in fact that the fundamental issues are addressed by anything in this current initiative. And I want to get back to that, but first I want to talk about some of the fundamental issues. Let's just take a step back for a moment and think about this repeated use of executive orders. In this case, I think it was specifically agency guidance. But this is an, this is an interesting wrinkle, Richard, in our system of checks and balances. I mean, can you give us some of the the legal background here? How is this power – how was it conceived of initially and how has it evolved over time? This is actually a subject on which I wrote a long article recently because uh, it turns out the word that you use, the administrative guidance, has essentially become the central focal point for modern administrative law. And let me see if I could explain why. Uh, if you go back to the 1938 um, period, what happens is we now see that the administrative state is going full bore by virtue of the fact that in 1937, essentially large federal power delegated to independent agencies is now fully established um, uh, 
there is no objection against this on the grounds that it's an improper delegation of so-called quasi-legislative power. There's no objection that the Commerce Clause doesn't go far enough and economic liberties cannot stop it. And there's a famous book written by a man named James Landis who later became, I think it was the dean of was it Harvard Law School, Yale Law School, um, in which what he says is that we really have to develop a new jurisprudence for the administrative state which relies on expertise with some judicial oversight. By the time World War II is over, there is obviously a lot of unhappiness about the Landis synthesis to some extent because people tend to think that administrative agencies have had too much power and there's too little oversight with respect to what is going on. And there's a bipartisan effort in 1946 to pass the Administrative Procedure Act. And what this act tries to do is to rationalize American procedure for the new administrative state. And if you think about it, it's a perfectly legitimate act to undertake. It's the first major initiatives in the post-New Deal, post-progressive world. And the original version of this said, well, there are ways you can do things. And one of them is you can have a kind of a full no hearing and so forth. And it's like a trial. And, you know, you get 800 parties presenting evidence. And what happens is there has to be hearings, cross-examination and the like. And these full formal hearings are as dead as dead can be unless they're explicitly authorized because it's nothing could ever get done. There is then something known as the notice and comment procedure, which is still used in big cases, where the government floats out a a proposal and ask for comments. And on some things, you could get a 1,000 comments. On some, you could get 10,000 comments um, after the notice is given. And then what happens is the agency has to do its work. But the courts, particularly the D.C. Circuit in the 1970s, came up with a view of what sort of notice had to be given and how the comments had to be treated, which essentially gave you enormous judicial power over the ways in which questions were formulated and evidence was evaluated. It was at complete variance with everything that Landis had believed. He thought the agencies would be king under these things and what the government would do is review its output, not fly spec every word in the notice request to see whether you gave sufficient information to people as to what they should answer. And it turns out notice and comment hearing is too difficult to do in most cases. So what people have done is they've resorted to something called interpretive rules and so forth and general guidances. And the guidance is now the dominant term. And what the agency says is none of this stuff is binding on anybody except our employees relative to us. And if you have a proposal which is good for doing the things that we want done, by all means do it. But there's no legal enforceability. Now, the benefit that the government gets from this strategy is that a guidance under modern law cannot be challenged in the court before essentially it is made a regulation or an enforcement action is undertaken. And so you sit there and you ask yourself, what can I do in the face of a guidance? And if you decide, I'm just going to ignore it, they'll throw the book at you. And so most people comply with guidances, whether they like them or not. And so there are many people like myself who believe you should treat a guidance as though it can be subject to a facial attack if it exceeds the authority of the government before any enforcement action or before any finality. And that position is widely rejected today. And the guidance has essentially displaced virtually every other form of administrative lawmaking, except in really big cases where you have to use no 
notice and comment hearing. So the Clean Water Act got notice and comment hearing. But most stuff with respect to drugs, for example, doesn't get it. And with respect to guns, it doesn't get it. So the president is trying to work that. And my view is that the guidance should be treated as though it's an official and final administrative order, even though it is not. And so you can challenge it facially. Most of the time, these guidances are actually helpful to people. They tell them what you can do. They give you safe harbors. Nobody's going to challenge it. But when the president's on the verge of executive authority, you don't want him to have the advantage that he can get the punitive effect of a final regulation and be immune from challenges that are normally allowed against final regulations. Do we have a sense in this day and age? Are there bright lines as to what the president can and can't do with this kind of unilateral power? Obviously, President Obama is interpreting it fairly capaciously. But is it easy for somebody like you who's versed in this to look at these individual initiatives and say, OK, that one's going to stand up in the courts. That one isn't. Well, I, it's the problem here is that all the initiatives have very different substantive content. And so trying to figure out whether the president has gone too far becomes extremely difficult. So uh, compare this to the immigration rule. And what the president did there is, in effect, he says, I've got the power to prosecute and not prosecute. And it's clear that he's never duty-bound to prosecute every case because resources in the government will not allow it. And so when he says, you know, I'm going to start exempting certain people from deportation proceedings, nobody can say that's per se illegal. Uh, Then you ask him, well, what's he doing? And it turns out there are two things that are very bothersome about that one. One of them is he makes categorical distinctions. He says, you know, aliens under 15 will never be deported. There's nothing whatsoever in the statute that allows for you to essentially create legislative exemptions of explicit breadth. The general notion is prosecutorial discretion has to be done more on a granular level. Uh, This guy won't be prosecuted because the evidence is too weak and so forth. So he's going to be hit on that one. He will probably win on that particular situation, but it's close. The one that he will surely lose on is that in the immigration context, the only thing he's allowed to do is not to prosecute. That's what prosecutorial discretion has been. But when he starts saying, you know, you, you, the states have to give these people driver's licenses and permits and so forth, and you create other collateral consequences, that goes beyond non-prosecution. And it's a pretty easy formal line to say you can't do any of those things. And Judge Smith in the immigration case in the Fifth Circuit coming out of Texas wrote a really very strong opinion which stressed exactly these kinds of elements. And I believe that it will be upheld in the Supreme Court, which is likely but not certain to take certiorari. So I think the president's going to lose on that one. With the gun stuff, you know, the question is who is a dealer? And you have this internet problem. How many sales you have to make online before you're a dealer. Now, the usual rule is that if you make casual sales of something that you own but are not in the business of selling it to others, you're not a merchant and therefore not a dealer. So if you want to look at product liability law and you've got an old toaster and you sell it to Scott and Magut, um, you're not a manufacturer, you're not a distributor, you're not a retailer. But a lot of these guys online essentially are selling stuff which they have an inventory to customers and you can say that they're dealers. And to the extent that the president wants to control that kind of a loophole, my guess is that he will win and he will win not because 
because the guidances can't be attacked, he will win because the ordinary definition of a dealer in principle ought to extend to online sales as it does to any else. And so what you have to do in order to answer this question, you've got to go through each and every one of the regulations one at a time and ask yourself, is this explication on the one hand or is this overstepping the bounds on another? And it's easy to make that distinction in words. It's sometimes easy to apply it. But I don't know this legislation well enough to be confident that each and every one of the components that he goes through, he's not dodging. And one of the things the president, of course, has to worry about is the contamination problem. He's got five issues and he's clearly wrong on one of them. The danger that he faces is not that the one gets struck down and the four remain. The danger is that the judges who don't like what he's done on the one will have a more suspicious eye on the other four and will strike all or some of them down as well. And it's that constant dynamic that he's trying to, to fight. So in this particular case, I think he's been chastened by his defense in the immigration case, which is why you have what everybody on both sides of the aisle seems to think is thin gruel coming out of this last initiative. The reaction of the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, to this initiative from the president on guns was that this is one more reason why it's important to elect a Republican president because since President Obama is doing all of these things unilaterally, we can undo them as soon as a Republican president gets in. So the question I have for you from that, Richard, is it is it a sign of strength that the president can run roughshod over the other branches, at least initially on things like this? Or is it a sign of weakness to Ryan's point that he is maybe erecting these things on such weak foundations? Well, I think in effect it's a little bit of both. The upside is you get short-term insulation from attack. But on the long term, you get a Republican in there. You could do it. My fantasy is I become attorney general for a day, right? Remember Larry <laughs> Lessig? And all I will do is erase each and every um, Obama executive order. Uh, that I think goes beyond its pale, and that's a very long and distinguished list. But uh, look, it's much deeper than that. Uh, remember, not only do we have executive orders that are designed to avoid legislation, we have executive orders that are designed to avoid treaties. And so if you look at this Iran deal, it is organized not as a treaty but as an executive understanding, which means that the next president can undo it. And the wisdom that most people had was no president would dare to underdo it because of the international complications. I think the folks who said that spoke too soon because the Iranians have behaved so outrageously on virtually every other issue uh, that if we decide to pull back and keep the sanctions in place on the money, the international community will realize that this thing has already failed and they'll reluctantly go along with us. Uh, so I'm not so sure that one is permanently put into place. The global warming stuff is exactly the same thing and you know it's all precatory in many cases and there's going to be a huge debate as to how important this stuff is and that thing could also go down the tube so the president essentially is unable to win over in many cases even his own party with respect to these things the republicans if they decide to repeal them will have of necessity 100% Republican support, and they'll have a little bipartisan support coming from the other side. The interesting question is what somebody like Hillary Clinton, increasingly looking like the Democratic nominee and probably the favorite for president now, what she's going to do under these circumstances. And she has to think long and hard. Um, she is not as liberal as uh, uh, Obama is. 
um, although she's very far to the left. And she may have to rethink some of this stuff as well because it's quite possible that the Republicans will implode at the top if Donald Trump continues to be a force or if Cred Cruz, who runs a very divisive type of campaign, becomes the nominee and you still have a Republican Congress. And if she wants to get anything done on the legislative front, uh, the quid pro quo is going to be you got to pull back on some of the abuses of your predecessor. So it's a curse in Chinese, which is we live in interesting times. And it seems to me that that also applies uh, to the political process that we face in the United States today. To that point about Hillary Clinton, this is the final question I'll ask you. As a historical matter, how do you reckon that we will remember – this aspect of Obama's presidency, the emphasis on executive power. Do, do you see in this something that could change the nature of the office in a fundamental way or do you anticipate it more being limited to this presidency? Well, I, I think in effect if people stop back at this, they will regard this as a low point in presidential behavior. I mean the contrast between George Bush and um, uh, Barack Obama, and this is just extraordinary. You can recall that everybody but everybody uh, got after Bush on his executive mm-hmm. signing statements and so forth. But they were small beer between what was going on here, generally reasonably well argued and so forth. Sometimes, you know, he said, look, you know, my commander in chief power um, just cannot be entrenched in this way. Well, Obama makes commander in chief arguments, but they're just off the wall weak. Like, you know, I as commander in chief can control, shut down Guantanamo Bay against explicit congressional authorization in the opposite direction to keep it going. You go back and you look at the steel seizure cases, and this is the case where the press President, this is low ebb. There's clear congressional stuff. It's obviously an issue which is not concerned with military affairs in the narrowest sense of the word. And to shut Congress out of this would be, I think, a mistake. Um, and the president, in fact, can't even persuade his own Pentagon to go along with him. Look, my view about it is that this is following amazing discontinuity. I'm going to give my little spiel on this, and it's two sentences or so. Um, you look at presidential rankings, as I did in connection with Wilson and the Princeton issue. And And you discover that Wilson is a great president and that Barack Obama breaks into the list at number 15 while Herbert – not Herbert, but Calvin Coolidge sits there in the sort of the third quartile at number 30. Well, I mean this shows you there's something deeply wrong with the entire historical uh, president. I mean uh, Harding was a better president than Barack Obama if you actually look at what went on apart from the Teapot Dome scandal. Coolidge was a great comparison. What happens is all of these ratings tend to reflect one of two things, strong liberal and progressive biases or a president who has survived in wartime, which is Lincoln and so forth. Um, But there's absolutely nothing about the domestic front which is not – which dispels the impression that what makes for a great president in the close cases is somebody who endorses various forms of left-wing large government policies. And people like myself who just don't believe in that in any area uh, think that Obama is sort of down in the bottom five of presidents. He's been a complete catastrophe in foreign affairs and his domestic program is ill-formed and his respect for the institutional arrangements that predated him and hopefully will survive him seems to be nondescript. So I can't think of a single dimension in which he gets out of the bottom quartile. And when you fail on every one of these things, you have to be described as a very weak president indeed. All right. With that, thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. 
And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.